Well, thank you again for the uh, invitation and privilege to be here to bring God's Word. Uh, I'd echo what Chris was saying about mission societies and uh, how helpful for me CMS has been when I was considering uh, serving uh, in Asia uh, some years ago now. Uh, and uh, I think it's great to have the opportunity to see the different tables here and meet different staff uh, over tea and lunch. So please use that opportunity. Uh, let's keep our Bibles open. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word that speaks so clearly and sufficiently to us. We pray that you will open our hearts, our ears and our eyes to see your truth, to live under it, to obey it, to be wise for salvation in Jesus and to live for the glory of his name throughout this whole world. And all of this we ask in his name and for his sake. Amen. Well, what a dangerous passage this is. Uh, it would be in some ways good to just leave it out of our Bibles these days. But some people love this passage and it's uh, used and abused on a regular basis around the world. For example, uh, in Singapore, one of the mega church pastors is now facing prison for fraud on a massive scale. And it's been a very significant uh, news item within Southeast Asia, basically. He's taken church money along with uh, church leaders with him operating to fund the music ministry of his wife. And he's facing significant time in jail. And he denies that there's any fraud. But what lies behind that person, that ministry, and so on, is the idea that God's blessing will mean wealth and prosperity. And money matters. You see it when Joyce Meyer, for example, flies into poor parts of Nigeria or India in her chartered plane to reap lots of money oh, and preach the gospel, supposedly, at the same time. And others do the same as well around the world. And that's where going with a mission society is good. So CMS, as Chris said, the Mission Society Home Office pays you, so that's really good. They don't pay you enough to guard you against the prosperity gospel sort of theology, so that's quite helpful as well. <laughs> you see, a passage like this can easily be misunderstood. God will bless you. The fruit of your womb will be blessed, the crops, the young of your livestock, your basket, your kneading trough. And in virtually every country where I've taught and preached over the last seven years around Asia, there are those who think that wealth is a sign of God's blessing and that we ought to be wealthy. And of course, some of these people are desperately poor. And it's a great trap, a great deception, uh, a great misleading when people are encouraged to seek wealth. And at its worst, for example, people in poor countries will find a rich West Christian, Western Christian benefactor to support their ministry but actually what's happening is they are thinking, I'm getting money, I'm getting wealth, this is God's you know, blessing, here is the fulfillment of verses like this. The abundance of crops and food, you'll be blessed when you come in and go out. What a wonderful passage. But what a dangerous passage if we don't understand it properly within its whole biblical context, basically. Uh, too often this 
this insidious and very strongly held prosperity gospel theology, which infiltrates the West, of course, and not just in the developing world, uh, but it seems to be gripping many people in the developing world. Uh, the idea of, of simply wealth as the, as the, the, the thermometer of spiritual life uh, is so bad. Israel fell for this in later years. So if you read Amos and Hosea, for example, at the end of the reign of Jeroboam II and Uzziah in the southern kingdom, the nations were relatively prosperous and stable. And so too often they thought, this is God's blessing on us. But of course, those prophets are speaking into that sort of context as well. So we need to be very careful as we not just read, but apply this sort of passage, the covenant blessings of Deuteronomy 28. Uh, there's a similar passage in Leviticus 26 as well. It comes within a framework of thinking of relationship between God and Israel. And as those who've studied anything of the Old Testament would know, I guess, uh, in the ancient world there were treaties between different countries and kings and kingdoms. And Deuteronomy reflects something of that covenant treaty structure, an introduction, a historical background, the general laws, the specific laws, and now the sanctions, the blessings and the curses. What happens if you keep this covenant and what happens if you don't? And to a degree then, what we see here reflects something of that ancient context. But what's very different, of course, is that God, one of the partners to this covenant here, is not threatening a small nation and forcing them into a peace treaty with him. Uh, rather, he's established a relationship by grace, by rescue, by promise to Abraham. And he's wanting to see that promise be fulfilled uh, in abundance in the future. So there's a very different sort of relationship that's going on behind this sort of covenant treaty sort of idea. What we also see, though, is if you obey, these are the things that will happen, is a legitimate incentive for Israel to obey to keep God's word, to keep in relationship with him. But we can't simply lift it out and plonk it in modern Malaysia or Australia or Mongolia or wherever it might be. We need to know who's being addressed. It's ancient Israel, the chosen people of God, a nation at this stage, but it's a nation descended from Abraham, the original chosen uh, person with his wife, Sarah, as well. This is not any nation. These words are not simply saying, if you, Malaysia, follow God, you will be blessed, as so often I hear around Malaysia where I live. Or we can't transpose it simply into Australia or into any other country, not so simply, because this is the chosen people. And since Jesus, there is no chosen people nation on earth, and there won't be. It's, it, the strategy has changed in the light of Jesus coming. So we need to be, be careful in simply applying this to whatever nation we come from, live in, work in, or ministering. Nor can we apply this individually. Notice that it's addressed to the nation. So it doesn't say for each individual, you'll have lots of children who will all be healthy, wealthy, and wise, and so on. But rather it's to the nation as a whole. And if you read in the earlier laws, we recognize that it's not the individualistic Western way of thinking. So the whole nation will be blessed, but that will mean, for example, from chapter 15, that people will lend without interest rate, they'll cancel debts, they'll be generous to the poor within their nation, whatever reason caused their poverty. 
So it's not an individualistic way of thinking here. It's a corporate way for ancient Israel as a nation. And we need to guard against thinking of it individualistically, and we need to guard against thinking about this uh, simply as any nation in the world. We need also to recognize the location of these uh, exhortations. That is, it's the promised land. So just like it's the promised people, it's the promised land. So the land that will be blessed is the land that God promised Abraham, the rough dimensions of which he gave in Genesis 15 and were reiterated in the first chapter of this book as well. So in the country and in the city and the nation that will be protected from enemies is that earthly promised land surrounded roughly by the med dead red seas and galilee which doesn't rhyme which is always a pity <laughs> this is not simply any land but the promised land the land flowing with milk and honey the land that i promised on oath to your ancestors to give you the land that they are about to cross the jordan to enter to conquer as their inheritance as well Notice that the blessings are conditional very strongly through this section if, if you obey in verse 1. The same idea comes in verse 2, uh, again in verse 9 and 13 and 14. Five times in effect, we have this strong idea of if. Blessings are here conditional on their keeping the covenant with God. We look at the word obey, we often walk away from that and think, oh, that's the Old Testament, it's all about obedience, but we're under grace. But, but that, that dichotomy is, I think, wrong and unfortunate. That is, there is grace that precedes this. These are people are already the people of God, and the obedience will be an obedience of faith in response to the grace of a relationship already established. And as we've heard, there are 14 verses of blessings that are given here. The land itself will be fertile. The people will be fertile. Crops and animals, fertile. There's probably a distinctive emphasis on that because the Canaanite gods who were in the land were fertility gods. And the great temptation which Israel fell into generation by generation was to go after the, the Canaanite gods, the Baals and the Asherah because that's where you get fertility. You would go and engage with a temple prostitute so that you might have children, fertility. You would go and engage with them in some way or give money or offerings so that your crops would be protected or grow. But what this is saying is, is that those gods are nothing. The God of fertility is Yahweh himself. He's the one who promised many descendants to Abraham. He's the one who promised an abundant land. God is the only living God, as we saw from chapter 4 uh, two days ago as well. The defeat of the enemies that's mentioned in these verses. Uh, they will, uh, your land will be guarded. Uh, the enemies who rise up against you in verse 7 will be defeated before you. They'll come from you from one direction, but flee from you in seven. That is, they'll, they'll scatter in defeat. The protection of God's people's land because God has promised that land, is part of this blessing here, if you obey. Of course, we know if you've studied, say, Judges, 
When they don't obey, the enemies come and take land and they cry out and God raises up a deliverer and they reconquer the land and then it goes back into the cycle and really a downward spiral through the book of Judges. And we see that happen through the books of Samuel and Kings. So often Israel's land begins to shrink and Philistines never get out of it and different people come in and take the land. This passage is interpreting what Israel's history in the future would be like and was like. They failed to obey the law and so indeed the enemies came, attacked, and won. And the climax of all of that, as the end of this chapter goes on to say, is that they will lose their land in exile. What's often ignored and overlooked in these blessings, we could say is highlighted in verse 10. Then all the peoples on earth will see that you are called by the name of Yahweh, and they will fear you. It's a reminder to us, as we've seen this week in chapters 4 and 9, and we could have found a number of other chapters in Deuteronomy alone to uh, show this theme uh, flowing through the book. If Israel obeys the covenant laws and obligations, and they therefore are abundantly blessed by God, it is not for their comfort and their ease that God is promising them these blessings, ultimately. But rather beyond that, that the nations will see that these people are God's people, holy people. The peoples on earth will see that you're called by the name of Yahweh. It's not just that they will say, wow, those Israelites, we like their lifestyle, we want to be an Israelite. But rather, wow, those Israelites have a great God, Yahweh, that ultimately it's not just Israel-centric, it's Yahweh-centered. They will see that you are called by the name of Yahweh and they'll fear you because they fear Yahweh is the implication of that. So, so here is, if you like, part of the, what we could call a sort of missiological strategy of God in the Old Testament, as we've seen in chapters 4 and 9 already. That God's choice of Israel and promise of blessings following obedience to them is not simply a reward for them, but is ultimately for the blessing of the whole world. That God wants all the nations to be blessed through the descendants of Abraham. I suspect many of you in this country are familiar with the little phrase, God's people in God's place under God's rule. Uh, it's uh, well known. I, I think it could be improved, dare I say it. Uh, I might be evicted from this country very quickly for saying that. But uh, Chris Green changes it to God's people in God's place under God's promise, which I think is quite a, a good thing. I wonder, although the word is slightly more technical, God's people in God's place under God's covenant, because the covenant is both the promise and the obligation. There is rule. Uh, here is the if you obey, but the promise is tied into that. That is, the obedience here is the means by which the promises will be fulfilled. If you obey, you'll be blessed in your womb. That is many descendants, which is the promise of Abraham being fulfilled. Your land will be secure and blessed. That's the promise of land. You'll be famous and your name will be great. That's the promise of Abraham being fulfilled. And so what's happening in the law of Sinai is that God's sort of putting in the means by which the promise will be fulfilled. So yes, God's people in God's place under God's 
covenant, that is promise and rule together, but what we could also add, for the sake of the world or for the sake of the nations, a reminder to us that it's not self-centered. It's not just obeying so that we're going to get something, so that we'll be prosperous and blessed. And maybe that's a helpful addition to keep us in the right bigger framework of what's going on here as well. God's purposes in the Old Testament are not simply for the comfort and benefit of the descendants of Abraham, but that through them, the world itself will be blessed. Well, originally I thought about the Bible reading today being the whole chapter. This is the longest chapter of Deuteronomy, but I thought, well, I might run out of time to preach, so let's stop at verse 14. And I don't want to discourage you too much, but after 14 verses of blessing, there are 54 verses of curse. It goes on and on and on and on and on, and it gets worse and worse and worse and worse as well. The curses reverse or are the opposite of the blessing. So a lack of fertility, a lack of rain, a lack of food, a lack of children and crops and animals, and there'll be diseases and mildew and blight and locusts and all that sort of thing that will come and attack you and your crops and animals. And when the enemies come, instead of verse 7 saying, you will, they will be defeated before you, they will be victorious over you. Again, as I hinted at already, in Israel's history, that's what we see. The Philistines and the Midianites and all these different ites all come and take bits of the land and Israel's disobedience is reflected thereby. But the climax of it is exile. They will lose their land. And the last part of the chapter switches from if you disobey to when. From about verse 45 onwards, all these curses will come on you and it becomes a more definite future. This chapter is not holding out simply you know, two ways to live, let me call it, as though we've got an equal option which you're going to choose, but rather the expectation that curse will be the reality. Blessing will be, if it's there, brief, but curse, in fact, is the reality. I think that's reflected by the length of curses, though the ancient treaties often had more curses than blessings, but as the chapters continue from here, 29, 30, and so on, the expectation is failure. The expectation is that Israel will not obey the curses, or the, rather the laws of God in the future. It's what the ceremony of chapter 27 suggests, and it becomes even more explicit in the next two chapters as well. The picture painted by these curses is terrible. It's not just the absence of fertility, but the woe and the frustration, the agony of, of suffering that is unfolded. It, gets, uh, it, it speaks about cannibalism in the siege before the fall of the city and the exile. What exactly happened in the siege of Nebuchadnezzar before Jerusalem finally fell? The futility, the taking away to serve other gods and so on. And it will unwind the redemption from Egypt in effect. They'll go, in effect, to slavery, uh, in a way, to another Egypt. It's not necessarily the, the exact Egypt, of course. The diseases of Egypt will come back. The promises of Abraham or to Abraham will, in effect, come undone because of the curses. And they'll end up in despair and in misery. This is an important chapter, of course, for understanding 
the history of Israel to follow. It's an important chapter, I think, for understanding the words of the prophets who build on this as they give issues of warning, of judgment, as well as statements of hope that are grounded in the promises to Abraham and, and also, of course, the blessings and curses of this sort of chapter as well. And despite its existence, the people of Israel did fail. The curses happened. What's astonishing is the patience with which God dealt with the people over so many decades and centuries after Moses. For what we find is this tension created. God, who is faithful to keep the promises to Abraham, but of course Israel fails. And so the failure to obey the law, as this book has unfolded, means that the promises are not going to be so simply fulfilled. How is that going to come about? This tension of God being faithful and yet Israel being faithless, deserving judgment, and yet God showing them mercy, not simply because he loves them, though that's true, and he loved Abraham, but also for the sake of the world, as we saw, for example, yesterday with the prayer of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 9. This ongoing tension derives from, from here, really, of, of God showing mercy that's undeserved, but yet at the same time bringing judgment that is deserved, but he won't let his promises fall to pieces, ultimately. Where do we find the resolution for that? It's not actually in the Old Testament. It's a resolution that comes in the New. It's a resolution that comes really on the cross. And in order to understand this chapter, at least by way of applying it for us today, we must read these themes through the scriptures before we can jump into Malaysia or Australia or Mongolia or whatever, or Japan or whatever it may be. That is, from Jesus onwards, it's no longer a national people of God. The true children of Abraham, the descendants of Abraham, are believers in Jesus, whatever their ethnicity is. The promised land is no longer an earthly land, but a heavenly inheritance guarded for us, as Peter says. The blessings then that fit the earthly land here are now for us blessings that fit the heavenly inheritance that is ours in Christ. So it's intriguing that the Beatitudes, for example, uh, and other passages of the New Testament, are no longer earthly focused of earthly blessings and earthly prosperity and earthly wealth, but rather yours is the kingdom of heaven. We've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. So a robust, if you like, biblical theology will guard us against a, a superficial application of this passage into a prosperity gospel that is so rampant in our world today. Here we see, see though, of course, uh, this theme of God's ultimate plan is the blessing of the nations through the descendants of Abraham. And that remains the case. What primarily we see in the Old Testament as a, a magnetic, attractional or uh, center-focused strategy gives way a little bit or is added to, maybe is a better way of putting it, in the New Testament when Jesus says go. But the attractional model that people will see now the church, the descendants of Abraham, and say, wow, what a great God they've got. 
still applies. And yet so often we ignore that side. So often we just think about going and not about drawing in the quality of our own holiness of the community of the people of God in church is too often underdone, I think, uh, when we think about mission. That strategy still applies, but it's now complemented by the going to the ends of the nations as well. So my brothers and sisters, uh, as we read the Old Testament, but as we read it uh, as part of our whole Bible, we must not overlook that right the way through is an undercurrent and sometimes on the surface this recognition that God's purpose of salvation from Abraham onwards fulfilled in Christ is that all the nations of the world will indeed be blessed through the descendants of Abraham. Ultimately that's through Christ the descendant of Abraham and through us living godly lives in him and speaking the word of the gospel of him as well. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are utterly faithful to the promises to Abraham to redeem this world through his descendants. We thank you for the privilege of having relationship with you as children of Abraham through faith. And we pray that we may uphold our responsibility to live godly lives that attract people to you, as well as to speak the gospel to the ends of the earth. For the sake and glory of Jesus. Amen.